Hello, buddies, and welcome to the first ever Sense and Theory presidential debate. I'm your host, world-class moderator, and fact-checker extraordinaire, Beanzo. Today, we will be asking our two candidates select questions called from the recent Democratic debate. Each candidate will be asked a question and allowed to eke out some vague response full of platitudes until they are finished or the answer sounds dumb and repetitive, whichever comes first. Their opponent will be given a chance to respond, drop a zinger, and criticize them for not discussing details while not discussing details themselves. Then, lastly, there will be a response to the response, which will devolve into the candidate trying to drop a comeback while I keep saying thank you over top of them while trying to move on. We'd like to start with a brief opening statement from both candidates. Since you have the floor. Uh, well, thank you, Beans. Um, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for uh, hosting this debate. Um, I'd like to say to all of you voters out there, uh, you probably know why I'm running. Uh, for one, politics has gotten extremely corrupt on, on both sides. Democrats don't, uh, don't really do it for me, and Republicans definitely don't do it for me. So I'm here to offer you guys an alternative uh, that is somewhat in, in the middle of things. So I'm hoping to educate you guys about uh, various issues and, and what I believe, and hopefully you guys will come along for the ride and we will take the White House by storm in 2020 and uh, fix the corruption in Washington. Well, that was vague. Theory, how about you? Thank you, Beans. You know, when I was a kid growing up, just like all of you regular, hardworking Americans, uh, my family, we were a close-knit family, and we came together around a certain core set of principles. Chief among them was the one thing that we knew was true in this life, and that's that Epstein didn't kill himself. Thank you. Well, okay. Uh, first question. House Democrats have officially launched an impeachment investigation against President Trump, which all the candidates on this stage begrudgingly support. Wishy-washy theory. I want to start with you. You have said that there's already enough evidence for President Trump to be impeached and removed from office. But the question is, with the election only one year away, why shouldn't it be the voters who determine the president's fate? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not glad that you asked that question, but I guess I'll answer it. Um, and, and I do kind of have to get a little wishy-washy here because this is what I'll say. Strategically, if I was the Democrats, I would not be pursuing an impeachment inquiry right now. Right now, I would be focused on the election and making absolutely certain that come 2020, President Trump is removed from office. However, I have said before that I fully think there's enough for you know, President Trump to be impeached. I think, you know, they can definitely file the articles in the House. They should be able to convict him in the Senate, bet they won't. But uh, if somebody feels like, you know, under the circumstances, they should move forward with impeachment on Trump, I can't really argue with it because they've, they've got justification, right? So, I mean, the arguments that I would make against impeachment are purely strategic concerns. You know, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to rile up his base any more than, you know, I'd kind of try to stay focused on taking him out in the election. But I'm also in no way, shape or form going to tell somebody who's who's seeking impeachment uh, that they should stop. Of course, of course, my opponent over here would say not to. We, we know he's a Trump supporter. Uh, he's he's coming on this stage in front of all you guys trying to pretend like he's not. We all know the truth here. Uh, if if there is enough 
evidence to impeach Donald Trump, we should impeach Donald Trump. Optics be damned. Election be damned. Uh, if he's done something illegal, we need to get him out of there. This investigation will clearly show whether anything illegal was done. And if it was, then he needs to answer uh, with the full extent of the weight of the law. There's uh, there's no there's no question about it. And if you ask me, um, sure, there might be some some optics at play, like maybe they're just, uh, you know, just trying to play politics. But uh, we'll find out as soon as the investigation's over. And, and uh, if if there's enough evidence, then I say get him out of there. Well, Get is, him there, gone. is there enough evidence? We'll find out. Well, I mean, I'm asking you, you are aware of things as they lay as much as I am. Is there enough evidence to impeach Trump right now? Uh, that's a question for Congress. Well, you're running to be president, right? That's not a question right. for someone running to be president. That's some, that's a question for Congress. Well, I think it would definitely inform the voters decisions before they go and vote for you, knowing where you stand on this issue. That's where I stand. If there's enough evidence to impeach Donald Trump, Donald Trump should be impeached. Okay, my opponent says that he's not sure if there's enough evidence to impeach Donald Trump. Thank you. Well, Sense is clearly not trying to take a stand on that issue, so we will be moving on. Comrade Sense, you propose some sweeping plans. Free public college, free universal child care, eliminating most Americans' college debt. And you said how you're going to pay for those plans, but you have not specified how you're going to pay for the most expensive plan, Medicare for all. Will you raise taxes on the middle class to pay for it? Yes or no? First off, Beans, I, I have no idea where you got my my stances on these issues because uh, I am not for eliminating uh, Americans' college debt. Uh, I am not for universal child care. Uh, I think that's that's a little bit pie in the sky crazy. Uh, what I am for uh, is is for reducing uh, how much companies are soaking us for these things. My my problem with healthcare in America is that the prices are so very high compared to any other country, we can't afford it. I am I am very much for finding out why that is. The quick answer: uh, greed. Uh, and that they're allowed to just soak us. I mean, $40,000 bills for a, for a broken leg when you could go south of the border to Mexico and get the same thing taken care of for 700 bucks, which I think most Americans could afford. Um, so you're, you're mischaracterizing me out of the gate. Thanks for that. Um, but, but again, even with Medicare for all, I, I think at this point, maybe it's something we have to do. But what I'd like to do as president is look at the reasons that that healthcare prices are so high, and find ways uh, to to scale that back and and bring costs down. You've got you've got Medicare fraud going all on all over the place. My wife, who had who had breast cancer, um, was called every single month by a a salesman, and he knew the maximum that she could spend on on her insurance plan, and he made sure she spent every penny of it. Uh, I'd like to see those kinds of practices stop. I'd like to see, um, you know, overbilling for for MRIs stop. I'd like to see overbilling. They charge you eight hundred dollars for skin to skin contact when you have a baby. That's that's absurd. Hand them the baby. Don't charge them eighty dollars for an aspirin. The list goes on and on and on. And and I think the overwhelming reason for these high costs is is personal greed. People are getting rich. Uh, middlemen in the insurance companies are getting rich. Um, 
and and we are we are paying the cost. And and I think to ask the American people uh, to just to just pay taxes to to cover those bills is not the answer. Then we are feeding the American greed machine instead of instead of getting a handle on the American greed machine. So to to answer your question, um, no, I don't support raising middle class taxes. Um, although if we're going to do something like Medicare for all, if we decide that, as, as the American people that that's the answer, um, then yes, we're, we're raising your taxes for it. I mean, I, that, that's where I'm at. Okay. Uh, I'm not entirely sure where my opponent is at. I will say that uh, most of the beginning of that, I, I completely agree with. Um, but um, in full Bernie Sanders fashion, hijacking the uh, question to run off on a narrative and everything. Um, I, I would say the real question is about whether or not in order to institute Medicare for all, we have to raise classes on the middle class. And I don't think so. Um, I think what you're talking about cost reduction and, you know, eliminating the fat for most of the healthcare industry is a pretty good idea going in and seeing where people are, are overcharging and, and fraudulent and all that good stuff. Um, but I'd also cut military spending. I cut military spending tomorrow and then see if we have to tax the middle class. I cut, uh, you know, a lot of the waste and, and, and fraudulent spending that's going on inside the department of education and the EPA. And I'd go after these things to see if we can balance the book and then see who needs to be taxed. Now, obviously to get something like Medicare for all, which I don't fully support, but if the American people do, then fine. Uh, to get something like Medicare for all off the ground, then you're going to have to impose something like those wealth taxes and something like, uh, you know, higher, you know, we have seen that the, uh, the progressive tax system has kind of flip-flopped a little bit. Of course, we've seen that here in Kentucky, as we've discussed on the show before, and we're starting to see that kind of on a national level. That's That's got to be fixed. We've got to get the highest income brackets back up into the high 30s and 40%. That's how this country functions. That's how it works. Um, but as far as raising taxes on the middle class, I think it's interesting that we're having a conversation where people have these plans and they know that in order to implement them such as they are without cuts anywhere else, it's going to require raising taxes on the middle class. And there's only one person, maybe two, to, uh, but one for sure, Bernie Sanders, to his credit, who will just come out and say, yeah, we're going to raise taxes on the middle class, but we're going to offset it by raising the premiums and everything. Um, if your plan calls for that, go ahead and acknowledge it. I mean, I think it's ridiculous not to. Um, but I don't I don't even think we have to go down that road. Why do we never talk about all the other wasteful spending when we talk about how we have to raise these taxes? So, so what you're telling me is that education and military is 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 wasteful spending. You're going to cut education, the EPA and, and military spending because these are wasteful in order in order to give us Medicare. We could we it's like it's like you got A, B and C. You can pick two. Well, I'm saying I believe that we can have uh, great a great education system, uh, a military that protects us, an EPA that makes sure uh, polluters aren't aren't ruining our waterways and our lands, and we can have quality medical care in America. Yeah, well, I I think you can too, but I also think that you know to believe that there's fraud in the private sector and to not believe that there's fraud in the public sector is lunacy. 
I mean, clearly there is rampant fraud going on in, in the EPA, in the Department of Education, in the Department of the Interior. Uh, you know, you name it, it's there. We know it's there. We see it all the time. We see studies all the time. So as far as, you know, the military budget, like, I think everybody's afraid to say I'll cut the military budget because they don't want to look weak on defense. But I mean, come on, guys, it's like almost four times the size of our, our the next biggest threat, which is China. I mean, it's it's quadruple the size of uh, China's military budget. I think we could trim some out. OK, fellows, I want to turn now to jobs. According to a recent study, about a quarter of American jobs could be lost to automation in just the next 10 years. Ohio is one of the states likely to be hardest hit. Clueless theory. You said your federal jobs guarantee is part of the answer to the threat of automation. But tens of millions of Americans could end up losing their jobs. Are you promising that you will have a job for every single one of those Americans? Beans, did you did you literally just cut and paste this from the last debate? Because I I clearly have not offered any sort of jobs guarantee. And I would actually uh okay, I'm gonna guess that you did. So I guess that's from CNN. I would take issue with the study, the study that they're citing about a quarter of American jobs could be lost automation. That's not what it says. It says a quarter of the industries in the country could be impacted by automation. Now, you know, some people may say, hey, there may be a quarter loss. Maybe that's what studies say. But uh, that's not a fair characteristic at all. And it's, it's really wild to me that in a debate, uh, you know, a moderator asks a question, doesn't even cite the study. And that just passes along. Everybody mm. starts answering it. You know, everybody just treats it like it's fact. And for a lot of people up on this stage, uh, you know, it, it fit their narrative, right? Like, you know, Mr. Yang and, and so on and so forth. Um, but I think it's it's incumbent if you are standing up there and the moderator asks you a question that's just complete crap that you call it out. Now, getting to the matter at hand, jobs guarantees from the federal government is is insane to me. That is, uh, that is like, you know, the first couple steps uh, uh, heading down that road to the gulag. And to tell you the truth, we, we kind of know that they don't work. Uh, that's basically what the New Deal was. You know, huge, massive job guarantees, Works Progress Administration and all that stuff. And that did not get us out of the Great Depression. If anything, it kept us in. Uh, do I want people wholesale living like fully? living off the teat of the government. No. So the question is, what do you do about automation? I am uh, firmly convinced that uh, humanity has the ability to adapt and get through. Uh, I think what Yang is calling our fourth industrial revolution or something like that. I think we will evolve and we will adapt and things might look a little different on the other, on the other side of it. Uh, there will be some hardships through it, and I think the government does have a responsibility to help people weather those hardships. But I don't think that we need to fundamentally, uh, you know, change and and abandon the structure of our society for something that is it's just a growing pain. It's a natural process of the evolution of society. It it sounds to me like like you've got <laughs> this idea that you you just have faith that humanity uh, will will come to the rescue and and find things for people to do. And I, I, I don't think much about the studies here. I think um, we're all just kind of looking at what might happen. And sure, we can nail it down a little bit. But at the end of the day, man, I think the writing is on the wall. 
as as robotics and computers get better and better, whether it's 10 years in the future, whether it's 100 years in the future, um, there's not going to be many jobs that people have left to do. And I think we're talking about uh, highly skilled workers and and low skilled workers. And we're at a point where the population is is ballooning and it's growing. Um, and like I said, I think the writing is on the wall. At some point, we are going to have necessarily more useless eaters, quote unquote, than we have people who are capable of doing productive work. And I think to think that, um, you know, the same thing will happen after that happened after the Industrial Revolution. And, oh, we'll just these these industries will open up where we can start hiring people like, yeah, it might happen and it might happen for a little while. But what about in 100 years? Um, you know, who? Why, why would anyone do work if we have robots that do that do everything? And, and it, who would you and, and I, I, let me be very clear. Um, it's not just labor. We're talking about uh, lawyers. We're talking about doctors. We're talking about uh, incredibly high surgeons, um, very high paid, high paid work that is that is necessarily um, going to disappear. And to think that stuff is just and, and there will be some things that come up. We'll have, uh, you know, robot maintenance workers. But if if profits are driving um, the creation of this technology, then necessarily jobs will be lost when they put that technology into place. Um, because, because if not, then why are you creating the robot to do it? Because it's cheaper, because you can, you can, uh, you know, pay, pay less for labor to get the job done. It's just the way it's, it's going. So I feel like we need to have broad sweeping changes to the way we view human value. Um, I think that there comes a point probably before I'm dead um, that we can no longer look at a human and say, uh, you know, you are valuable because of your your productive output for the human race. We we are going to come very quickly to a point where we have to assess what is valuable about humanity. And sure, for the last for for the entire human history, we've done that based on how much you can you can provide. You know, can you can you can you reap? Can you can you grow? Can you build? Um, and if you can't. Uh, then you're then you're homeless, and you know you you are not valued. And and we have safety nets to care for those people. And as that pool of people grows, we either have to relegate them to the to the dregs of society, or we have to build our safety nets up wider to include them and lift them up. Well, what's interesting is is that for one thing, you said faith. I, I wouldn't quite call it faith. I mean, twice in the last hundred years, we've seen the world basically completely shift the economy, right? We went from agrarian to mainly factories. We went from factory to service. Um, so with that in mind, I, I want to point out that I think, interestingly enough, I think the big question here is whether or not how far we're going to let the government get intertwined in our lives, because ultimately I think either way, the same thing is going to happen, whether we follow my vision, whether we follow your vision, Right. I think that things will become automated and that will actually create a whole lot of more free time. Um, I want you to think for a second about the Jetsons cartoon back in the 60s, right? George Jetson worked one hour of one day a week and he got a salary, right? Now, that's a little <laughs> silly to us, right? But that that's kind of what I'm saying. We, we don't know 
what this thing is going to look like on the other side. Well, I think we so, know that that given the current situation, no company on earth that is beholden to shareholders would pay a salary for one hour of work in in one week. Like, right. I well, think we know that. Like, well, the, the point was to, to give you a different vision, right? So with people freed up, right, with people having more time, uh, people having access to things like Patreon and having the ability to create, um, who knows what people are going to sell? Who knows what kinds of things people are going to find to do and perhaps market it? And I think that happens. 30 seconds there. Whether we let the government into our lives and where they're controlling a dole that we live off of or not. Okay. Th thank you. Thank you. Moving on. Income inequality is growing in the United States at an alarming rate. The top 1% now own more of this nation's wealth than the bottom 90% combined. Ridiculous sense. When you introduced your wealth tax, which would tax the assets of the wealthiest Americans, you said, quote, billionaires should not exist. Is the goal of your plan to tax billionaires out of existence? I, I, I can't even believe this. Beans, you're supposed to be the fact checker. Uh, Bernie Sanders said billionaires should not exist. Not, not me. But anyway, to, to, to get to the meat of it, um, I think that if you have made a billion dollars in America, um, you 99.9% chance that you stepped on next to get there. Um, that you have made unethical decisions, that you have um, capitalized on on other people's labor uh, in in a way that I would probably deem unethical, um, at least unfair. Uh, when we're talking about billions of dollars, we're talking about spending fifty thousand dollars a night, like I spend twenty dollars um, at at a restaurant, and. And that's not because I'm. It's just a fact. It's just how it is. The, the amount of wealth um, in individuals' possession rivals um, global economies, and to me, there's there's a big problem with that, um, and not inherently to itself, but in in the context of of Americans not being able to pay uh, for for healthcare. Um, there are billionaires created in the healthcare market, and we ask ourselves, why are we paying forty thousand dollars for a broken arm? Well, we're paying forty thousand dollars for a broken arm, so so millionaires and billionaires can get wealthy. I the connection is 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 obvious to me. So taxing billionaires out of existence, like that's not a goal, um, but it may be the result of of my goals which would be to to bring all Americans to a a level of of comfort um that that is acceptable for a first world country. Look, I'm I'm not I'm not saying billionaires need to go away, but we already accept that there's a progressive tax structure and that wealthy Americans can afford to pay more taxes so they do. Um and I see no problem with increasing the tax burden on the wealthiest Americans to to you know cover some of the gaps where we're currently failing uh, the less wealthy Americans. No, that's that's a measured take, and I, I don't think I can disagree with that in and of itself. But I do take issue with you know some of the things that you said earlier in your response, and and most certainly uh, things that that Bernie, who I think actually dropped that quote. Uh, you know, would say or, or have you believe in it's, it's the idea that like that it matters um, how much money a certain person has. 
And I, I can see a couple instances um, where you'd be worried about it. You're worried about money and politics. You're worried about, uh, you know, if, if, if the world turns into a, to a hellscape, we're worried about like private militaries. Sure. Stuff. But I think if you, if you push for the reforms um, that I support uh, stuff like, you know, Senator Warren's campaign finance reform and, and her uh, ethics bill and stuff like that. Um, then I think you take a lot of that out of it. And then the question of how much money uh, Jeff Bezos or any other billionaire has um, doesn't really come into play. Now, the idea that, you know, for someone to amass billions, they had to step on next. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that's true. I, I think it can happen, but I, I can tell you the same thing's true of millionaires. And there's a good chance that the same thing would have happened with people who were down in the hundred K's. So I'm not, I'm not sure why that's always presented as like a moral argument for like why the billionaires need to be soaked because, you know, they had to have stepped on next to get there and stuff, or they could have just, you know, provided a, a good product that everyone wanted to buy. And then their company, you know, they got there first and their company grew and grew. And then there they are. I mean, the idea that they necessarily had to do something uh, evil or immoral to acquire that much money is an idea that's, Gained a lot of traction in recent years, but I, I don't know if it really holds up. I I think we we largely actually agree there, um, mm -hmm. and it's interesting that during these debates, um, agreements are kind of few and far between, even though the candidates are so similar on their yeah. positions, yeah. right? So um, I I might have some some minor quibbles about you know whether Jeff Bezos was um, ethical in the procurement of his billions. I, I think I got arguments there, but, but largely I, I'm with you. I'm not, I'm not mad at the billionaire for having billions of dollars. I think the bigger deal is that the, the, the answer remains the same, right? Like, so we might have a minor quibble, but we, we both want to see, uh, you know, people paying their fair share of taxes. And then we look at that available money pool and see what we can do and all that, you know, all that good stuff. But, um, but yeah, I mean, like, I, I think sometimes in debates, fights are picked simply to differentiate each other and, and just to be picking fights when it's not always necessary. Mm. It's not. Well, whatever. I want to turn now to foreign policy. President Trump ordered the withdrawal of all American forces from northern Syria, abandoning America's longtime Kurdish allies. As a result, Turkey has now invaded Syria. ISIS detainees have escaped. And the Kurds have announced a new deal with the government in Damascus, a, a victory for Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad, Russia, and Iran. Sweet, simple, naive theory. Last week, you said that American troops should get out of Syria now. You don't agree with how the president handled the withdrawal? What would you have done differently? How would you have pulled out troops without the bloodshed we're seeing now? This is a this is a really good question. I think it it strikes to the the crux of the isolationist dilemma, right? Um, first off, I don't, I don't like the idea that we use you know the term isolationism. I've kind of I've, I've leaned into it before when discussing my beliefs because it is what it is. That's the word we use. But isolationism it's not it's not about isolating uh, you know America from the world stage. It's about getting out of other people's business. Like it's it's a different kind of mindset, but. As far as specifically what's happened in Syria, no, you can't just you can't just walk over, pull the plug, pull everybody out. Uh, consequences be damned. But but that's the thing is like Trump isn't an isolationist. 
Like he's he's playing at being an isolationist. He's he's somebody who pretends to be one on TV. Uh, you go back to Ron Paul back in 2008, 2012. He was very clear. He's like, no, we can't just pull out of everywhere tomorrow because they tried to hit him with that question at debates. And he'd say, we have to, you know, look at the situation, figure out how to draw down forces, how to, you know, make sure that things are in place when we pull out. Now, that being said, there's still going to be consequences to us pulling out. There are. I mean, you know, quite frankly, if if we move out of some regions, then there's going to be a power vacuum and, and people are going to fight over it, stuff like that. But it, it's it's their right. It's their land. It's not for us to determine who the winners and the losers are. It's on them, you know, to to set their own course, chart their own course. So, yes, I can disagree with how Trump handled it and yet still firmly believe that we need to stop the world police bullshit. Yeah, I, I think it's funny that um, we we all, I think, <laughs> most Americans uh, want to end these endless wars in the Middle East. And part of ending those endless wars is withdrawing from them. And we're talking about wars that necessarily have no end. So at some point, if we are going to commit... Um, to to stopping the fighting, we we have to withdraw at some point, and and there will be a loser on the global stage because of that. Um, it's just an unfortunate consequence of of our of our foreign policy. You know, we've we've gotten into these places now. Either we have to stay there uh, seemingly forever, or we have to walk away. Um, you know, Trump, I, I don't think he's, he's doing this for, you know, any reasons that aren't purely political. Um, but as, as president, I, I would definitely work on getting us out of these wars. You know, does that mean ceding ground for Russia to move in missiles closer to us? Uh, you know, I, I won't talk about, uh, uh, about stuff like that with the public because I think some things should be secret, but I would say that that as president, uh, I would make sure that we do it with the the utmost respect uh, for the Kurdish people um, and the utmost uh, focus on national security moving forward. Um, oftentimes, those goals are are going to be antithetical to each other, um, but that's just the world we live in. So you, you got to take some good and 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 take some bad, and uh, you know, and just try to do the right thing. Yeah, I think as president, I would I would push for, you know, our, our intelligence agencies, our State Department, uh, you know, the Pentagon and stuff. I'd make it very clear that no longer are we going to go in places on the, the idea or the rumor of a potential threat that may be, you know, years down the line or stuff like that. We need to see something that is, yeah, I won't say clear and present danger because there's a little room in between, but um, drastically shift the way that we're going about these things. Yellow cake, obviously, or the, the phantom rumor of yellow cake will never justify an invasion where I'd ever be the chief executive, you know? Um, and I think that that's, that's kind of the way that we have to approach it. I'm no fan of the UN, but work with the UN if we're worried about some of these hot spots and, and stuff like that. But I would also oppose the UN going into some, you know, I would have, and, and as you know, the United States sitting on the security council of the UN, we've got a lot of weight. 
and a lot of clout. We could we could drastically change um, the way that 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 countries are exploited and raped for their resources and used as pawns in these geopolitical games and stuff. If we would put our our clout towards more of a non-interventionist policy for both us and and the UN. Well, here we are, ladies and gentlemen, witnessing the merging of a single wishy-washy outlook. Moving on to the next question. The American intelligence community says that Russia is trying to capitalize on the power vacuums around the world as we're seeing right now in northern Syria. Senate Democrats put out a report last year on Russia's hostile actions around the world. They suggest the next president could fight back by publicly revealing what the U.S. knows about Putin's corruption and work with allies to freeze his bank accounts. Petty ass sense. Would you take either of those actions, even in the face of possible retaliation? Look, uh, honestly, the way I feel, if we have information about uh, a corrupt world leader, then the people of Russia deserve to know. Um, and the people of the world deserve to know. Um, so absolutely, I, I, I'm not afraid of retaliation. We have the greatest military in the world. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to be afraid of 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 Putin. I'm I'm not. I'm not going to kowtow or, or bow down. Um, you know, if if we have evidence of of Russia's corruption, then yes, absolutely, uh, I will share that uh, with with the world with with people. Um, if that causes military engagement, then, then so be it. Uh, here we are. Um, I, I think there are certain facts, uh, of the world that dictate that, that, uh, force is the way we end up handling disagreements a lot of times. And, and I'm not afraid of using it. So, uh, in a way I, I I'm saying that I will not compromise my principles, um, for fear of, of military retaliation. I think one of the things that we would have to do first before we considered um, action like this is kind of restore faith and trust back in the United States, right? So if I were going to release information on Putin or, you know, Bolsonaro or anybody um, that showed their corruption, it, it would 100% uh, have to be ironclad accurate, and I would actually uh, uh, WikiLeaks style, without exposing any of our assets to the best of my ability, release all the documentation that supports it. Um, short of something like that, short of something that is that is dead to rights, smoking gun, um, I would again, I'd, I'd stay out of it, um, and that's because I think too often we have abused um, that type of tactic. Um, now, the way I took this question when it was asked, um, when it was talking about retaliation, was not only militarily, but like, would they do the same to us? You mm. know, would they interfere in our elections and, and so on and so forth? Um, and I think it would be a novel idea. And I promise that if elected, I will be that guy. But I think it'd be a novel idea to have somebody in the White House um, who doesn't have anything that you can hit him with, you know? <laughs> um, but I think. Um, I think we do have to recognize that much as we have in the past, there is a good chance that as India continues to develop and as China continues to develop, I'm not saying that they necessarily will. Uh, you throw Brazil in this mix. Um, I'm just saying there's a chance that they're going to try to meddle in other people's affairs. 
Hell, we did it. And so twofold, I'm going to be trying to pump brakes on stopping us from doing that going forward and trying to keep them from meddling in our affairs. But I don't think it's, uh, you know, all the all the shock and indignation that I've seen over the the potentiality that Russia interfered in our elections. It's it's just hypocritical bullshit, man. That's that's how the world works. And if we want to see it different, then we have to be different. Mm. Yeah, I, I largely agree with you there. Um, you know, obviously, I, I wouldn't support, uh, you know, releasing a random whistleblower's third hand account of, you know, Putin, Putin peeing on a on a hooker. <laughs> yeah. um, but but again, if it's ironclad, you know, I, I am I am all for uncovering the truth. I think that, um, you know, if. If the truth is hidden from people, we can't make good decisions about the world around us. Um, and a lot of times the truth hurts. A lot of times the truth is something that will destroy lives. Um, but sometimes you just got to bite the bullet uh, and let people know what's what. And, you know, that's that's what I'm about. <laughs> oh, wow. That's I don't even know what to say. <clears throat> Well, now we want to turn back to domestic issues and the epidemic of the gun violence in this country. We're less than 100 miles from Dayton, Ohio, where two months ago, a gunman killed nine people using an AR-15-style weapon with a high-capacity magazine. I want to stay with Mr. Big Government since, in the last debate, you said, quote, hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15s, your AK-47. But, when you were asked how you'd enforce a mandatory buyback, you said police wouldn't be going door to door. So how exactly are you going to force people to give up their weapons? You don't even know who has those weapons. This uh, first ignoring Beans' idiocy, obviously, that was uh, Beto O'Rourke, who is who is long out of the election. Plenty at this more point. than 100 miles from Dayton. But I, I have to say, this was kind of the highlight of the Democratic debate to me, because this is a subject... Um, that Democrats have largely pussyfooted around. Um, and I was really glad to see this question being so pointedly asked. And the main point here to me is you don't even know who has those weapons. And, and that's kind of the bulwark to me against uh, over government overstepping our second amendment rights, right? Like you, you, you don't, there's, there's millions of them who knows what house they're in. Um, so barring people saying here, take my weapon. You're, you're not going to get them. Um, unless you go, you know, military style door to door, jackbooted thugs, uh, ripping your house apart to find weapons they think are there because you you're on record with the background check. Um, I think after this question was asked in the debate, we all kind of, we're forced with the understanding that that is never going to happen in America. Um, you know, it, the, the, the hardest we can go was, you know, Beto saying like, well, yeah, you'd be a criminal for the rest of your life. If you didn't comply, you, you would be a felon for the rest of your life if you didn't comply. And, you know, obviously if you walk out of your house with an AR 15, we're going to lock you up and take your AR 15 and put you in jail. But, um, to me, we've talked about this over and over on the show. Um, I don't think guns are the problem. I think there's a problem with humanity in America. Um, I think we have, we have walked away from decency. We are so disgusted 
um, with ourselves as a society that we're able to do things like kill 20 random people in, in 30 seconds. That is not a product of the tools that are available to us. And, and we know we can look at other countries across the world who have implemented bans like this and, and violent crime continues and large scale uh, mass killings continue. They continue with trucks. They continue with knives. They continue with bombs. Um, I, I don't think I, I think that that attacking guns is 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 an argument that uh, that isn't an answer. It's a solution that's not a solution. Um, I would like to see, and as president, um, I would certainly attack the issues that I feel are leading to, to mass shootings. Um, and I think those are, are disgust. I think they're hopelessness. I think they're depression. Uh, they are anger, misguided anger in a lot of cases. Uh, you know, some of these recent mass shootings were obviously, uh, inspired by xenophobia. Uh, I think the conversation about xenophobia in this country, uh, is a good start. Uh, I think we need to talk more about it. We need to get to the root of these issues and and we need to come together um, as people instead of being divided. And I, I, I feel like politics does nothing so well as divide us, um, especially on issues like guns, um, because we're just, we're not having the right conversation. It was with a heavy, heavy heart um, that I learned that Beto has dropped out of the presidential race. Um, it really, I, I think it's it's a blow to the show going forward, not being able to talk about Beto. Um, but again, I do like, you know, looking at his campaign in memoriam, um, I, I think it's interesting because I think where people will try to make the case that Beto was just out there taking flyers, he wasn't. He he knew what he was doing. He was targeting a a aspect of the Democratic Party um with with ideas like mandatory buybacks and I think it resonates with a lot of people. Um now I think the reasons that he had to shut down his campaign are are more complicated than saying, you know, well Democratic voters just didn't rally around his ideas. I think it's cuz you know they've already got a Bernie or they've already got an Elizabeth or you know so on and so forth. Um, but I think when you see that that's out there, when you have a candidate who's running for president who, you know, I mean, as much as we lampooned him, I mean, the man had a percentage of support around the country. He had more support than I do right now. Uh, he was beating me in the polls. Um, but to see him out there saying that, that again, as I've said on the show before, is indicative of the fact that there are a lot of people out there who are terrified. And for them, it's hard to accept that the the long term solutions, which I, I fully agree with you and truly believe, are more centered on depression and, and anger and some of the other societal ills that we have running through the nation. Um, it's hard for them to accept that that's the way that we're going to beat this thing, and it's going to take a while, and it's going to be messy, and it's going to be complicated. So I think that as someone who supports gun rights, um, we have to always be willing to to listen and and hear the ideas uh that they're coming forth with and and make arguments against them in good faith if they suck you know so if um you know the we we talked about closing the gun show loophole uh we talked about ways to do background checks and stuff we have issues or at least i have issues with the red flag law in some respects i don't want to put words in your mouth um but um but you know that's that's we can't just 
dismiss the people out of hand and say, oh, well, you're just, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there that don't even know, you know, as we've discussed how an AR-15 works and they're just talking out of their ass. But it's scary, man. It's scary when you don't know if your kid's going to come home from school. Mm. So, I mean, you know, just kind of, I think empathy, if if you're going to ask for them to empathize with the fact that guns are very important to you, then empathize with their terror and, and vice versa. I would say the same thing to them. Yeah, I, I actually think empathy um, is is kind of a, a key here on all sides. I think uh, I think gun people have to empathize, and and anti gun people also have to empathize on the other side. And 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 larger than that, I think that that empathy is how we start restoring uh, some of these some of these social failings that are that are leading to these things. On on the other hand, I, I also have to say that. You know, it's, there, there's a limit to that empathy. Um, you know, if someone is just downright stick in the mud, being an idiot, um, you know, at some point you got to stop entertaining them. Um, so the people who who are making arguments about caliber sizes um, and and stopping power and have no clue about these things, like they, you don't deserve a seat at the table. Uh, so. Anyway, Beans, do you have a question that uh, might actually uh, get some disagreements going here? Well, hey, I can't help but y'all are the same person. Next question. Turning to another key issue in Ohio and around the country, the opioid epidemic. Heartless theory. I reached out to the Ohio Democratic voters for their most pressing questions. Bree, a teacher in Proctorville, asked in rural Ohio... The opioid epidemic has affected our community and schools. I have many high school students who have lost one or both parents to heroin. Teachers are on the front lines daily witnessing these tragedies. How will you tackle the problem in general? But specifically, what will you offer people in rural communities where rehabilitation is not easily accessed and access to jobs is difficult? You you, you reached out to Ohio Democratic voters. Okay, all right. Um, yeah. Uh, so opioids, um, I think that in, in Bree's question is, is part of the answer. I note that she said, you know, where rehabilitation is not easily accessed and access to jobs is difficult. So I think that the government's fundamental job is to help make access to the things that its citizens need, uh, easier and to remove barriers from that access. Um, in the case where we're talking about people who have been ravaged by, by drug addiction, um, I have no problem uh, with the government, you know, step, stepping in and, and lending a helping hand. Now, as far as <laughs> where would I pay for that? How would I pay for that? I also have no problem in this instance um, seeking damages against the large pharmaceutical corporations who knew exactly what they were doing when they were sending millions and, and perhaps even billions of pills uh, to places around the country. I have no problem with the government uh, pursuing, you know, uh, punitive fines and, and lawsuits and, and whatever is at our disposal to uh, make them pay for what they did. However, where I feel like some of the debate candidates are ready to just call it a day there. Um, I actually want to talk about the doctors as well. And I want to talk about the people at the FDA that had to approve some of this stuff and knew this stuff was happening because those prescriptions 
don't just happen in a vacuum, right? How long has the DEA been attached to the licenses for the prescribing, right? So this is one of those things where I think we get wrapped up in the evil corporations, bad, kill it. And we're happy to then just sit back and say, well, job's done. We got the bad guys. And that's the problem with demonizing the corporations and the rich is that there are plenty of other structural issues that have contributed to this very real epidemic. Sure. And I, I find it hard to to disagree with anything you said there, but I take um, probably a, a pretty uh, uh, not very popular stance on this, uh, probably pretty controversial stance. Um, I think that, uh, that drugs have been around since the beginning of time and they're not going anywhere. Sure, we can stop doctors from prescribing them. Um, we can we can punish the the pharmaceutical companies and, and we can bring treatment um, into areas areas that were that were impacted and don't have access to treatment programs. But uh, let's be honest, man, this problem is not centered around pharmaceutical companies anymore. Um, now people are doing heroin, which is coming in illegally across the borders from cartels. Um, you know, people are processing opium and they're making it into hair. And, and, and that's not something that is a doctor's problem. Um, I think it's, it's a personal responsibility problem. I don't think we'll, without going short of completely legalizing drugs, um, we're, we're not going to stop it. People are going to become addicts. They're, they're going to use substances that, that alter their minds. Um, and, and I don't think it's necessarily, as big of a problem as we make it out. And, and I don't want to sound like a monster here, but I think we all know there, there are plenty of functional cocaine users out there. You know, if you go walk up and down wall street, um, how many of them are wiping their nose? I, I think a lot of these addicts, um, function fine in methadone clinics where they have access, uh, to the drugs that they want at the, at the dosage that they feel like they need. And they're able to go to their jobs and they're able to provide for their children. Um, high as shit all day. I, I don't have a problem with that. I think, uh, and this would keep me from being elected. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't care. I, I think people should be allowed to use drugs as long as they're not endangering other people. Um, and I think if you, if you walk into any methadone clinic across the country, you're going to see people lined up out the doors who are now functional drug addicts. And, and I'm okay with that. I I think that people eventually, um, you know, given access to cheap, uh, uh, pure drugs that we, we know aren't adulterated with fentanyl that might kill you tomorrow. Um, I think people will eventually come off those drugs themselves. And they do. I think you you see fairly good success rate at, at methadone clinics. So, um, you know, that's not to say that, that methadone clinics are the end-all, be-all answer. But I would like to see an approach from society that allows people to indulge. We let people drink. We let people smoke. Increasingly, we're letting people smoke pot and get high. And, and they're perfectly fine individuals. So as controversial as it is, um, let, let them eat cake. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is, that is a, uh, that's fair. And you will, you will be standing solo on that particular plank of your, uh, of your platform. But no, I think, I think that's, it's almost to me, at least that's almost a separate issue. Like, so I, I'm not talking about, you know, the people who are able to do cocaine and go work on wall street, the people who are able to function. What I'm saying is, is that this is a place 
where there is room for the government to step in. One of the one of the places that I am willing to concede that you have whole cities where people were, you know, just completely everything in the city, every or city, everything in the small town revolves around this pill, where to get it, where and yes, they've shifted to heroin and so forth. But I think it is a big issue. I think we have so many uh, grandparents who are raising children. We've got people nodding out at stoplights, and I think you know, sure. The media sensationalizes everything, and I'm sure there's at least to some extent uh, that going on here. But I have seen enough of the stories that I'm seeing in the media, like in my personal life, and stories that weren't reported to know or at least to strongly believe that, yeah, this is really happening. It's huge and it's everywhere. So I think, you know, as far as the whole idea about, you know, going after the doctors and the pharmaceutical companies and everything. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't think it's, it's not, it's not to stop it. Um, at least that's not the way I view it. I see, uh, their crazy gross practices as, you know, hooking a generation and sure it's morphed and it's changed going forward, but it's not so much about trying to pump brakes and put an end to illegal drug use as it is. You know, because to tell you the truth, I'd be fine with decriminalizing personal possession. You know, to say, I mean, honestly, that's where I would be at. Maybe that disqualifies me from running for president, but there I am. Um, but no, it's more about trying to get these people help and try to get some of these, especially like throughout Appalachia and, you know, portions of central Ohio and, and these places where there's no hope, get some hope there before we start having more incidents like we were just talking about with the shootings and so forth. You know, before we start having that heartbreak and because, you know, you say that you see people who go to the methadone clinic and, and they're able to go and feed their kids and stuff. But I'm just saying, and this is, uh, you know, straight up anecdotal. I have never known anybody who was actively going to the methadone clinic. and I've known quite a few who was happy, mm. like who was happy. You know what I mean? Well, so it's fair about enough. And, and, and you raise, a, you raise a, a good point that. I probably seem callous on. I I don't mean to be blind for the to the people who are who are nodding out in the in the line waiting to pick up their kids from school, which I have seen happen. You know, personally, I've had to go knock on a window. Um, you know, if someone who was nodded out there to, there to pick up their kid, that's you know that's behavior that that I don't condone. And um, you know, obviously, we deal with those situations with alcohol too. Um, you know, you've got you've got the drunk dad, you know, beating his kids, um, and those are. You know, these are failures that we're always going to have to live with because humans are are imperfect and and we're crazy and we're wild and we do stupid things. Um, I just see, I see more more negative consequences from our fight um, to to stop drug use than than I do benefits from just saying go ahead and go ahead and use. You know, we'll give you the tools to get better when you want to get better. If you want to get better as a society, our arms are open to you. We'll do everything we can to help you. But, you know, go go ahead and get high if you feel like you need to. That That's a great point. And one thing I want to say real quick before we move on is I look at this almost, uh, interestingly enough, the same way that I look at um, automation and stuff in that I see the government's role. And I see this, you know, across a broad spectrum. It, the government's role is to, you know, give you access to the tools that you need to succeed. 
not necessarily give you the end product in my mind, but it's to give you the tools. So if you're out there and you're, you're on drugs and you don't want to be on drugs anymore, then which yes, is almost every drug addict. If you there talk there to is them, a place heroin addicts in, in particular, there is a place for the government to, you know, provide you so that you can access the resources to help you get off. Mm. Um, if, if, you know, you're looking at automation, I have no problem with the government, uh, you know, uh, helping you learn how to switch careers, helping you, you know what I'm saying? So like for me, most of the time, that's how I envision the government It's not necessarily, um, you know, picking you up and carrying you, but giving you that helping hand. I'm mm. fine with that. Senator Warren is calling for companies like Facebook, Amazon, and Google to be broken up. Is she right? Does that need to happen? Uh, that's a really good question. And uh, I think the short answer is not necessarily. Uh, I'm all for trust busting. I feel like in America, we've we've forgotten why we even bother to to break up massive companies. You know, we forgot about the failings of Ma Bell. Um, but... At the same time, as someone who works in technology, I know that these things, uh, these large platforms like like Facebook and Google, they're not possible um, at smaller scale. The reason they operate well um, and profitably is oftentimes because they have scaled so well. So, so breaking them up um, could very possibly destroy them. I don't think the problems with Facebook and, and Google and Amazon are necessarily centered around their size. I think they're centered around things like privacy. Um, they're, they're centered around things like how they handle data and what we allow them to do with that data. Um, the, you know, the problems I see with a Google, a Facebook and Amazon um, are that their power lies in how many lives they touch and, and what their what their potential is. Um, what the potential damage they can do with it. And we can talk about from, from security breaches, which we've seen, you know, the largest uh, companies in the world who seemingly have the budget to, to handle computer security. Well, you know, epically fail and leak millions and millions and millions of records. Um, but beyond that, uh, the people at these companies have access to these databases and they have access to our information and we don't know what they're doing. Um, you know, barring some whistleblower coming out and telling us how evil Facebook is being with our data, who who knows? You know, we we have no idea. So, to me, the answer is not just breaking them up and making them smaller. That just makes where how we attack these problems even more difficult because now we've got multiple places to attack them. I think we need very strong uh, data protection laws in the United States. I think we need to have some really hard conversations about. Um, how companies store data and what they're allowed to do with it. Um, I don't like the idea of of a Facebook or a Google knowing what all of our congressmen have searched for on Google or or where they've driven their cars. Um, I think that amount of power um, is just asking to be abused. And right now we have no idea if it's being abused or not because these companies don't have to be forthcoming. Um, it's just a giant black hole uh, with with the world's largest amount of concentrated power in the hands of a few people, um, I I think that monopolies um, get a bad rap, right? And the reason you know it's it's when I say that it's because I think that some of the things that we have called monopolies in the past 
weren't monopolies. Now there have been monopolies in, in the United States and you put your finger on a, on a big one in Ma Bell. Um, but for instance, I think if you go back and you look at the history of it, uh, what happened with standard oil was a political move uh, against a company that was, you know, beginning to experience competition and challenges and, and, and so on and so forth. So I think what we need to remember is how good it feels uh, when, when the little guy sees these big companies and these, these rich barons like broken up and, and destroyed and stuff and how effective a political tool that is from a populist standpoint. Because I think that that is largely what this is. Like you said, our biggest problems with Facebook and Amazon and Google and stuff right now is, is data. And, but we're not talking about data. Uh, we didn't have a question in the recent debate about data. We had a question about breaking up monopolies, right? Because that's where the narrative is. It's the rich people are out to eat us and, and, and we have to fight back and all that good stuff when they have this much wealth. Sure, there are concerns. There are concerns about, uh, you know, Bezos and, and the number of things that he's in. I've heard, you know, that he's, he's forcing some companies out of business and stuff. But uh, I brick think and mortar stores are, are suffering, you know, as a result of Amazon eating the marketplace. I, I, well, I mean, they're also suffering as a result of the 21st century. Sure. I and mean, I think they know, would have been suffering if there were if there were 10 different Amazons right. competing with each other as well. Right. In fact, they may have suffered more because I tell you, you can go on Amazon and you're not getting that great of a, a deal. You can order what you could get at the store and you're going to pay just about what you'd pay at the store. I think well, with 10 Amazons competing, you'd force prices lower and lower and brick and mortars would be out of business there's a long before. Don't underestimate. But yeah, also don't underestimate um, how much effect Amazon has on the price at the store. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Because, you know, Walmart is absolutely looking at the prices at Amazon. Touche. It's setting its price. Touche. So, but, but long story short, yes, um, they can absolutely, power can conglomerate in these huge corporations and they can be, uh, you know, tools for evil and stuff. Um, but I think that we can solve a lot of that uh, with smart, uh, regulation and with uh litigating like with actually like holding them accountable for the regulations that they are breaking because i will say that in the time that i've spent reading about monopolies and, and stuff like that train cartels back during the progressive area because it's it's become something that's kind of fascinated me because i see the parallels um is that these train cartels and various things that formed in that that big trust busting era that era where these laws kind of came into being and stuff a lot of it was formed because they were working with government in order to establish these cartels that then were busted up, not by the government, but because the cartel itself couldn't hold together. Mm. It was actually, in a sense, and I know this is wild, and again, if we want to talk about statements that disqualify me from running for president, but it was the greed of the members of the cartel that kept the cartel from holding together. You see, like if they had a set share and it was like, you're going to get this much and you're going to get that much and we're going to control everything. Well, the one guy's like, yeah, but I want more. And before long, that cartel, it breaks up, it busts up. So, you know, I'm, I'm just saying there's a weird interrelationship between big business and big government. And, you know, from time to time, we focus too much on one without focusing on the other. What a stupid answer. Moving on. 
Turning to women's reproductive rights, Ohio is now one of several states that has banned abortions after as early as six weeks of pregnancy. Many women don't even know they're pregnant at that time. The Ohio law, like many others, is being challenged in the courts and has not yet taken effect. World-class misogynist theory. If states prevail on restricting abortion, what's your plan to stop them? Well, it's actually, it's, uh, it's not much. Um, I would use uh, the weight of my presidency, if elected, um, to push for a uh, codifying of Roe v. Wade. I would uh, try to get passed through Congress a national law that would enshrine a woman's right um, to an abortion um, probably um, up to 20 weeks, something like that. I think that is the somewhat globally accepted norm. Um, however, were I to fail in that endeavor, um, then I would let the states continue to decide uh, beneath the auspices of Roe um, however they saw fit because I firmly believe that it is up to the states um, to decide, you know, within the greater framework of the Constitution and the laws that we've passed, um, how they implement and carry things out. And if it has the support of the people in that state, then who am I to say otherwise? Now, I personally uh, do believe that a woman should have a right to an abortion up to that time point, which is why I would, you know, push for a federal law. But I, I might even, uh, you know, consider attempting some form of like plebiscite uh, in each of the various states. Uh, just what to is a plebiscite? Hold. It's where you let the people in the states uh, kind of vote on it like a proposition. Okay. And, and let them speak and then use that um, to try to clobber Congress over the head with it. Say, look here, this is the American people who have spoken. This is what they want if the numbers back that up, which I think they would. And, you know, try to use that to push that through uh, Congress. I'd do everything I could. But if it didn't go through, then the Constitution is very clear about how things work after that. Yeah, I'm I'm largely largely in the same camp as you. Um, I think I could quibble about, uh, you know, the timing of the abortions. Um, you know, I think 20 weeks is maybe a little too early. Um, I, I think this really... A lot of this abortion stuff is pushback from when you had an old buddy, I don't remember who it was, say, well, sure, you know, technically, yes, you could have an abortion, you know, at the day of birth. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I think that horrified a lot of people. And, and I think it I think it should. Um, there's definitely a point where a fetus is a human being. And I don't think it's necessarily the point where you cut the cord, right? There is some point in there where it's thinking and living and feeling and, and science gives us a, a decent idea of when they feel pain and, um, you know, when things start happening in the brain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So my personal beliefs, um, you know, from a libertarian standpoint, um, it's part of the woman's body. So, you know, it's almost like a civil rights issue um, in that it's it's her body and she should decide what happens. Um <sighs> On the other hand, if states, you know, if if states want to make a decision, that's fine. Although, if we're talking about civil rights, you know, it wasn't fine for slavery. Um, there are lines where the federal government has to say, well, yeah, states' rights, but, you know, here's here's a line. And I, and I think abortion 
um, for me is one of those lines. Um, what that would mean as a, as a president, you know, I don't know. Maybe this would be my first executive order. <laughs> Probably mm-hmm. not. Um, it's just it's one of those tough things, man. This is one of those issues that will that will always divide people. And I, I think we've done a pretty good job in the past. We've had some compromises where where abortions were legal and allowed up to a certain point, you know, third up to the second trimester, um, and and we and we let it get away from us. You know, we we had some extremists on this side, and then we ping ponged back with the extremists on the other side, and now we're in a really bad place. Um, and I, your your plan sounds good at at coming back from that, but I. I, I don't see it I don't see it working. I think we're going to see a lot more fighting back and forth for many many years on this. Well, absolutely. Speaking of plans, let me let me kind of hip you to what some of the plans are uh, that are being considered right now. There are things like executive orders and expanding the power of the president. Um, there are things like withholding funding from states if they don't comply with, I guess, the administration's will. Because it's not the federal law that's on the books, right? It's just the administration's, I don't know, sense of morality. Right. right? No, it absolutely. And that's scary so, as shit, right? Yeah, I mean, and that's, those, are, those are terrible things. One of the differences that I, I, I would highlight, you know, you, you drew a comparison between the civil rights issue and this, is that the other side in the civil rights issue um, didn't think that there was like murder going on, right? So, so you have to temper it. It's not the same thing. On, on, on one hand, with the civil rights movement, we had people who were denying the rights of other people uh, solely, you know, based on ignorant beliefs. Here, we do have uh, people's rights being restricted, but it's because the other side thinks they're killing people, yeah. right? It's, it's, it's a little bit different than, than civil rights. So I think treating it like civil rights and letting it get entangled uh, further, because that's kind of the same tact that they're taking was the way that voting right law compliance was uh, demanded by withholding funding and stuff. That's the kind of things they're talking about doing uh, with these abortion laws. And obviously if they don't, if they don't work under Roe versus Wade, then yeah, sure. I'm all for it. Yeah, sure. Cut their funding, make sure that they're complying with the constitution and the Supreme court decisions that have been handed down. But if they are complying and you just don't like it, I'm sorry, you got to pass a law. Mm. And so my my goal would be to get that law passed. And yes, there'd be a lot of fighting, but that is how we get a definitive end uh, to this bullshit. I mean, by and large. Now, granted, there's still going to be people arguing about it for years, I'm sure, whichever way it breaks. But it's got to come well, out of the court. Once the law it's is written, to, it's really hard to, to unwrite. It's so. a law. And if you have those plebiscites, like I said, backing it up, that goes a long way. If you can point and say, look, guys, I'm sorry. But 73% of the country feels this way. I'm, you know, sorry. Oh, so you do hate women. Next question. The Supreme Court is currently made up of five Republican appointed justices and four appointed by Democrats. The court just announced it will hear arguments in a case challenging some abortion rights. Let's stick with square ass Supreme Court fetishist theory. The Constitution does not specify the number of justices that serve on the Supreme Court. If Roe v. Wade is overturned on your watch and you can't pass legislation in Congress, would you seek to add justices to the Supreme Court to protect women's reproductive rights? Absolutely not. Um, I, in fact, to me, it's crazy 
to even begin in this climate to suggest adding justices to the Supreme Court, because I promise you, within 20 years, there will be approximately 35 judges on the Supreme Court. Uh, it's insane. I've seen some of the plans. Um, there's some decent ideas. You know, I did like uh, uh, Buttigieg was saying that the extra five judges that he added had to be approved with unanimous consent by the judges that were already there. But to me, that just further reinforces the drive to politicize the appointments when you appoint one of the big nine, right? So I think we have to be extremely honest about why the Supreme Court is as political or politicized as it is. And it's because of crappy presidents doing exactly what the people want. Right. In order to depoliticize the Supreme Court, you have my solemn vow that while president, I will select the best candidate for the job, not the person who most closely represents my views. In fact, I will shoot for someone who can skew to either side. I will look for an honest to God centrist because I, I want to be real here for a second. If we're talking about the Supreme Court, what we need are centrists. That is the one place where I am 100%, 100% comfortable telling you that we need through and through centrists, not partisans. Because the whole idea of a judge is to hear and weigh out the cases impartially, right? Not going in with preconceived biases. So now that we've established that, justify to me a reason why I should ever appoint a partisan judge. Well, because this judge should, you know, he should make sure that we're upholding da-da-da-da-da. Well, if he's impartial, he will, right? If he's skewed to your side, then he's pushing for your side. That's not impartiality. So, no, I will never support uh, packing courts. I will be the not packing courts candidate. That's who I am. Screw packing the courts. And and I hear you, Theory, I and, and I largely agree but I think yet again we come to a point of of principles versus practicality. We are in a position where justices have lifetime appointments, and and they are very skewed and biased already. Um, so the process of of inserting justices who are not incredibly biased that takes a long time. We got a long long list of justices who've got to live out their lives and die or leave of their own accord um, before we have any any hope of fixing it. And that's that's not to say that that I think that packing the courts is necessarily a good idea. Um, but I'm open to changes. Um, I, I feel like if there are good plans um, that can help us reduce the bias in in the Supreme Court, then we ought to hear him out, and and we maybe ought to go down that road. Um, I'm definitely not, you know, one of these originalists who think that nothing should ever change, and and uh, you know the government is perfect as it is. Like, um, you know, I'm 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 open to changes. I haven't looked into you know Buttigieg's plan. I you know I don't know enough to to say definitively that I would support this or that. Um, you know, I des- definitely wouldn't appoint a liberal <laughs> a liberal judge just just so I can pass, uh, you know, protect abortion. That, sir, is a gross mischaracterization of originalists. Originalists do accept that things can change. It's just that there is a proper process for it. To happen. <laughs> Touché, right? I'll give you but, that. Um, no, man, in all seriousness, uh, I am open 
to some ideas that I've heard uh, with the Supreme Court myself. Um, I really like the idea of instead of the the lifetime appointments, uh, doing a rotation with the uh, the appellate courts. I think that's actually that that might be a brilliant idea. Um, so that way we're seeing um, the judges uh, rotate off every so often, and then you know one rotates on you know the senior judges from the various appellate courts. Um, I, I I think that's solid, and I think you know I'd have to think about it, look at the details, but yeah, that's something I'd be willing to listen to. But um, that still sucks if we're still appointing shitty judges, right? I think as far as the amount of time that it's going to take for this fix to go into place, um, I think we, well, for one, we need to recognize there are probably two seats coming up fairly quickly. The The Supreme Court turns over quicker than I think most people think or most people are used to. We have lived in a time where there was a big, long run where the Supreme Court was pretty young. And I think that's kind of skewed our perception of it. But, you know, historically, it turns over fairly quickly. Um but I think it's the same thing as, you know, asking Congress to pass laws. And it's the same thing as asking the president to chill out on the executive orders and stuff. Yes, it's going to make things a little bit more difficult. And it's going to be a nightmare while we're sorting it out. But I can tell you this right now. Every Band-Aid you put on it, like court packing, and every Band-Aid you put on it, like I'll just sign this executive order until it gets done. Every Band-Aid the Congress tries to put on it and say, well, if we just passed a law that said this, then it would ball wouldn't be in our court. It'd be in the executive branch's court. Every time that happens, it does not fix the underlying issues. Mm. These are the fixes that will fix the underlying issues, making Congress accountable to actually governing the damn country and not trying to get reelected, appointing people who are not insane ideologues onto the Supreme Court. And for God's sakes, letting the person who's at the head of the executive branch, the job that I am asking for right now, let me just execute the laws and not necessarily, I almost said the F-bomb, make them. (laughs) Right. <laughs> you know, it's so. interesting. You, you point out, um, you know, not appointing ideologues to, to get elected. And I think that's a huge key because that is something that that we, the constituents, actually have the power to change. Um, if we are not electing people based on who they appoint to the <laughs> Supreme Court, um, then they are less likely um, to appoint people people to get elected, right? So, you know, when one side cheers because Kavanaugh made it and the other side boos, um, we are contributing to that divisiveness. And when the next Democratic president comes in office and we clap because he's appointed someone that we know will save Roe versus Wade, we are falling into the tar pit trap. Um, and, And it's hard because... A lot of us want to see Roe versus Wade codified. We want to see abortion rights protected. So it's really hard not to jump into that game um, and clap when our side's winning. But we, we, I think we have to recognize um, that that team sport attitude is actually building the problem. And, and it's one small thing we can do to step away from that game to make things better, as hard as it is. Finally, we made it, y'all. It's the last question. Last week, Ellen DeGeneres was criticized after she and former President George W. Bush were seen laughing together at a football game. Ellen defended their friendship, saying, quote, We're all different, and I think we've forgotten that it's okay that we're all different. 
So in that spirit, we'd like you to tell us about a friendship that you've had that would surprise us and what impact it's had on your garbage beliefs. Look, that's that's a poor question. And the reason is because my my personal friendship with someone doesn't strike um, at at the heart of the national conversation here that that Ellen is trying to bring forth with her friendship with George Bush. Look, we've talked about it on the show before. Uh, we talked about the flawed messenger. We've talked about what that, that there are lines at which someone should get cut off um, from society. And, and that line is, is up to you as a person. It's not up to me. It's not up to Ellen. Um, it, well, it's up to Ellen with her relationship with George Bush. If, if she feels like George Bush has not crossed that line, um, then that is a, a perfectly acceptable friendship. And, and she may be the person um, that, that brings George Bush across the line. Um, it's, it's on us as human beings to, to reach out and express our beliefs, um, and, and hopefully change other people's beliefs. That's what makes us better. That's how we learn. It's how we grow to shame Ellen for being friends with, with George Bush, um, is a little bit ridiculous. I mean, if it was Hitler, eh, you'd, you'd have a point, but I, George Bush is not Hitler. Um, it, it, it baffles me. Um, that, that Ellen could be attacked for modeling such human decency. Uh, and it, and it frankly frightens me, uh, because if George Bush is, is where you draw the line, man, you're, you've already cut off more than half of America. I mean, um, so I, I would like to actually answer the question in, in the spirit it was asked. Um, a friendship that I have that might surprise all of you is there was a time uh, in my life where I was actually friends with Beans. Um, I, I actually liked him and enjoyed his company, but it turns out, um, as this show has brought to light, that he's, he's complete trash. Hey, y'all, this is Beanzo, beloved star of the critically acclaimed show, The Bean Pod. I want to thank all of you for taking a moment to check out my side project, The Sense and Theory Podcast. Remember, if you need an extra dose of truth and integrity between shows, you can find all the links to contact my social media team at senseandtheorypodcast.com. You can also join the movement that's sweeping the nation by donating five bucks a month and becoming an official Beanzo buddy at patreon.com slash senseandtheory. And finally, don't forget that my segments normally start somewhere between 55 minutes or an hour in. So you can always just skip ahead to the best part. Thanks. This is your gracious host, Beanzo, signing off.